0: Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on, that regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. College is expensive and keeps getting more expensive year after year it doesn't have to be this way. Jenna Ashley Robinson is the president of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal and has a simple plan to reduce college costs and encourage competition. Jenna, how would you lower college costs?
1: Right. So I'll start with at the federal level. And I'll preface this by saying that this would definitely be pushing the Overton window because this is something that our Democratic Congress is not talking about right now. But I think the way to lower college costs is to make sure that colleges have skin in the game and of course you've heard this phrase before in reference to other things but in the context of colleges and universities it means putting colleges on the hook for some portion of the student loans that students are unable to pay back so all that defaulted student loan money that never gets paid back to the federal government tell colleges that they have to pay for just a small part of it because it will add up very, very fast. And we know from our default data that there are some colleges that are especially bad actors in this area. And so that is, that's my one reform that will really, really push it. And the reason it does that is because it aligns the incentives. Right now, colleges only incentive is to get as many warm bodies into seats as they possibly can and keep them there as long as possible. Colleges make more money off of students who stay around, not graduating, than they do off of someone who gets in and gets done. And so their incentives are all wrong right now. If colleges have to pay for even a small amount of that loan money that students end up defaulting on, it will encourage them to do a lot of things that we want them to do anyway and that they say they're doing anyway. Things like caring about student success, graduating students on time, making sure that students actually get good jobs and major in things that are useful, Um, caring about students' grades, caring about who they admit. I mean, there's just a whole host of things that would be fixed with this one single reform.
0: Okay. um, I thought college debt is really hard to default on. I mean, how much how much are students not paying back these loans?
1: Right. So it's really hard to officially default on your not default on your loans, but it's officially hard to get out from under it, you know, forever legally. So it's hard to get out from under loans using using bankruptcy, for example. Most bankruptcies don't include student loans; they're they're excluded from that process. Um, but what really happens is students just don't pay it back, which is really easy to do, right? You just don't pay Mm -hmm. the phone when they call. You just don't send them checks. Now, sometimes this means that you get your wages garnished or your social security checks garnished, which is crazy to know that that is happening, that people who are already taking social security have student loan debt. Um, So there are consequences for doing that. But garnishing someone's social security check is not going to recoup you know, $100,000 worth of loans. And so there really is a lot of debt that's just kind of hanging out that the federal government has no expectation of getting back.
0: Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about how your plan might work then, because is it just um, uh, once a student is not meeting their payment schedule, uh, the college is responsible for a portion of it, or how does it work?
1: So the way that people measure default right now is a certain amount of time after leaving school they look at whether a person has made progress towards paying it back and then they further look at you know how long it's been since they've since they've done that and they look at a 3 year cohort default rate so it's a very generous formula to make colleges not look that bad because they exclude anybody who's in default. They exclude anybody who's in forbearance. So that means if you're in grad school or if you've got some hardship that you told them about and they're, you're in forbearance, it, it is included. So the official cohort default rate right now, what they do with it is if your default rate gets too high for too many years in a row, you as an institution can no longer get federal student loans. That's how they use it right now. But they've set the cutoff so high that almost no schools ever actually get cut off from that student loan funding unless they're already going defunct for other reasons. Um, And so what this would do is once that student is in official default, not in forbearance, not in deferment, then the school would be on the hook for say 10% of that student loan amount. And I think that there, there can be discussions about whether or not the school has to pay it all up front or, you know, pay it over a 10 year or 20 year plan like this, like the student would do. Obviously, you know, that's something that would probably get, you know, compromised in the, in the legislation like everything else. Um, and, and I don't have strong feelings about how that would actually be implemented. But I think just getting those incentives in the right place is is the most important part.
0: Okay, so just a little, you're saying just a little bit of skin in the game can really matter and keep uh, tuition low in the future. It can't really be that simple, can it?
1: Well, it's not that simple because that is a huge, uh, politically difficult thing to do. Um, Universities are enormous constituencies. Universities are especially important constituencies for Democrats. And most legislators. Uh, don't necessarily understand incentives and why they're so important. And so getting this across uh, the finish line through Congress and signed by a president is obviously a a, a huge hurdle. This is a reform that has been talked about for many years. It was um, not on the table, but at least being discussed um, when Donald Trump was president when he had a much more friendly Congress to such an idea than exists right now. And it went nowhere. And so although the idea is simple and I do think it would bear fruit, the hardest part would be getting a Congress that's willing to do this because universities would uh, scream bloody murder. They're always going to Congress and going to the States with their hands out for more money Uh, They have no interest in in a reform like this happening.
0: Uh, Do you know how much uh, the student uh, students defaulting on their federal loans cost the typical taxpayer or cost the federal government?
1: You know, I don't have those data in front of me, Mm -hmm. um, but I do know that student loan debt is now larger than total credit card debt in the U.S. And so it is a it's a large portion. Obviously, Congress, like every other debt, is just kicking the can. And so, what it means to taxpayers today, I have no idea. But future taxpayers, you know, as more and more students default, go to colleges that you know don't have any kind of real prospects for future uh, jobs. This it's going to be a bigger problem.
0: Aren't schools already competing with each other over cost and quality?
1: Honestly, schools don't compete on costs very much, and that's because many times costs are kind of obfuscated. Um, I don't know if you've seen a recent letter that a student gets when he or she is accepted to a school, but the way that a school presents the student aid package, the bottom line number is always zero. And that's because, you know, they do some fancy math where they say, well, here's how much money we're giving you in scholarship. Here's how much money you're going to borrow from the federal government and then if necessary and here's how much you can borrow in private loans and then at the you know at the end of the day today you own nothing and they don't talk about what you're going to owe in 4 years, 5 years, 6 years after you graduate. Um, and they do a really good job of telling students, "Hey, the sticker price isn't the real price. We're going to give you discounts." You know, they market that very heavily, but that's not really marketing, you know, lower tuition. It's 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 marketing um, scholarships and access in some way. Um, and so there's not a whole lot of competition on costs um, and on quality kind of. Um, we all know that there's U.S. News Report, U.S. News and World Report, which has its annual rankings of colleges. But a lot of what goes into that is reputation. It's mm-hmm. not actual quality. And so if you are Harvard or Princeton or Yale or one of the other Ivies or one of the UC system schools, you know, it's all based on what you've done in the past and what other higher education leaders think of you as an institution. It's not actually about a student's ROI.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's kind of get in on some of the mechanics of these university decisions, because they keep, uh, tuition keeps rising year after year. Why is that?
1: So part of it is that there's an academic arms race and a an administrative arms race. So this happens. At, you know, you go to a university board of governors committee meeting and they're talking about how they can't keep faculty. And you know, this is strange because we all know that there's a there's a there are a glut of people with PhDs, right? There are lots of new graduates coming out, so it shouldn't be hard to keep faculty in this kind of market where nobody who has a new PhD can get a job. Um, But what happens is that every university compares itself to every other university and nobody ever wants to be below average. And so UNC Chapel Hill says, well, we're losing faculty, you know, to our carefully chosen peer institutions. And then they compare the average faculty pay at UNC Chapel Hill to that of University of Virginia or University of Michigan. And they say, look, we're falling behind. And so then they raise faculty pay. And then the next year, that same conversation happens at UVA or the University of Michigan. And so year after year, the pay goes up. And it's actually more of a problem with administrators than with faculty. Mm -hmm. Uh, The administrative spending has been growing at a much larger rate than the spending on faculty. In fact, most of the faculty salary growth happened like early in the 2000s and has been since then, you know, just keeping up with inflation. Um, Administrative growth, on the other hand, is it just keeps going up and up and up. And as long as they compare themselves to each other, they're they're going to continue this arms race.
0: Okay, let's dig in on the administrative uh, question, because I've seen those numbers, too, and they keep going up. It's uh, constantly more expensive, Mm -hmm. but it's always been a challenge to try and figure out why they're adding administrators and what they think, uh, what, uh, you know, university presidents, the other people making these decisions feel like they're getting from this.
1: Um, Right. So part of it is that university administrators are very, very risk averse. And so if the federal government tells them that they have to have Title IX coordinators to make sure that they know what to do when students are sexually assaulted, they hear that as hired Title IX coordinators and an entire apparatus and team um, Focused on the issue of Title IX and what we can do about it, and uh, gender. I'm sorry, gradient, what's Title know, Nine. No, sorry. Title IX started out as the part of the code that said that if you have men's sports, you also have to have women's sports, and so it was just supposed to mean be a gender equality kind of measure. It has ballooned so that it covers anything to do with sexual assault, with athletics, still with any kind, almost any kind of discrimination on, on campus, with harassment. Um, and this is a
0: federal regulation it of it all higher education regulation. institutions. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And so this, you know, this one thing that the federal government has said you have to do, which is, you know, have someone to respond to Title IX complaints, balloons into a, a huge bureaucracy because, administrators are trying to make sure that they're legally covered, that they're doing what's required and that they can't be sued and that they can't be called to account by the federal government for not doing enough on on these, um, these regulations. And so that's just one example of a federal regulation that makes it, um, it, makes it so that universities have to hire. Um, the accreditation process also makes it so that universities have to hire more administrators. There was a study several years ago Vanderbilt University estimated that $11,000 worth of their costs every year were because of federal regulations, you know, of which accreditation is a part. It was followed up a few years later by a larger study with more schools in it, and the average was about $7,000 per student goes to the administration required by regulation. And so that's that's one part of it, but obviously $7,000 is not Um, you know, it's not even a third of what most tuition is across the United States. And so another part is that...
0: um, Although, can I stop you on there? What just... What does accreditation actually do, because, as I understand it, it's not certifying that students actually learn something in your institution?
1: No, it doesn't look at all at the outputs. it only looks at the inputs and I would say that the only thing that accreditation is actually good for is to confirm that a university is not going bankrupt immediately
0: <laughs> so if if why does that cost so much? <laughs>
1: It takes an army of administrators, just like everything else in higher education. Uh, they require a lot of um, a lot of internal materials. It's an audit. It's extremely complicated, and it it doesn't give the benefits that it really should. Um, you're right that it doesn't it it doesn't guarantee that a student is learning anything of importance whatsoever. Uh, but as I was saying, that's that's only part of the cost. The other part is, of course, that, as I already said, university incentives are completely misaligned. Um, universities are motivated by um, their reputation, by um, the idea of excellence. And like I said, they're in this arms race. And so, you know, how much money is the right amount of money to spend to pursue Excellence. It's totally open-ended. That could be always giving massive scholarships to students who you think are going to be, you know, the next Jeff Bezos, the, you know, the next billionaire who who invents Amazon. It could be providing, uh, you know, wonderful sports uh, facilities. It can be the most beautiful dorms. It can be um, medical centers that are doing cutting edge research and cutting edge activities. And so because universities have this very kind of amorphous mission and driver, you know, they, they don't have much to compare it to. And so they, you know, they pursue excellence or their version of excellence. Um, with as much money as they can possibly get from every source they can possibly uh, get it from. And they spend all of it, everything that they get every year. And so this keeps...
0: I assume some endowment funds aside.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. The Well, the endowment its like this untouchable thing that isn't actually cash on hand in any meaningful way. If you're a responsible fiduciary, you're only drawing down a tiny bit of your endowment every year. And so endowments are, you know, only important in so far as they provide income, yearly income. And so, you know, every year they raise money, every year they spend money. um, And and then they just keep doing it over and over again. They're very bloated.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's say that you've you've shifted the Overton window. Uh, Colleges have uh, skin in the game. Mm -hmm. What does college look like then?
1: Well, I think the first thing that happens is that fewer students are going to college, and that's not a popular opinion, right? Most of what we hear is that more students need to go to college. But when I say college, I mean this in the colloquial way. Fewer students are going to a four-year university, and more students are pursuing less expensive options. And the reason for this is that if there is skin in the game, universities are actually going to recruit students who are likely to make it through the degree process in a reasonable reasonable amount of time and going to pursue a major that leads to lucrative employment. And that's a smaller percentage of the population than our current um, college going population right now about 40% of students after eight years still have not graduated from a four-year university. So, you know, 60%, 60% make it out. And maybe that's the percent that's that would get admitted in the first place, right? That's the goal. You don't have dropouts. You don't have students who have gone to college and gotten nothing for it. Those-
0: That's a negative uh, drain on society, essentially. It's, it's a drain on so society. there's a value for a college degree, years,
1: it's got to, yeah. It's extremely hard on the students themselves who go to college, invest their time, learn very little, and then have nothing to show for it. Because employers treat some college, no degree, just like they treat a high school diploma. You don't actually get any any kind of salary bump from having gone to school and dropped out. You know, that, that signals something about you as a potential employee that, that employers don't like. And so those students would, I hope, not be admitted in the first place to a four-year college where they're unlikely to succeed. I hope that they would go to community colleges, they would become apprentices, they would join the military, they would start small businesses, they would go directly into the workforce, they would do any number of things that are going to be a better payoff for them than going directly to a four-year college and then failing. So that's the first thing that would happen. We'd have a lot fewer students on campus. And those students that are on campus would be already ready to succeed, which means that universities in large part wouldn't need an army of tutors and learning centers and literacy coaches and um, academic advisors, you know, to the extent that they need it today. Because a lot of that uh, bureaucratic academic, apparatus on campus with that, which they call academic services, you know, is tutoring for students who are falling behind. And so you would not need part of that, that apparatus. Students would be more likely to, you know, get out on time. And there would be more demand from those students who were there, who remember, have gotten the grades to get in, who have proved that they are ready to learn. Uh, So the, the environment on campus would be different. You'd have you know an appetite for actual learning, um, instead of students kind of putting their heads down and sleeping through class or not showing up or you know what what have you, I mean, turning off their camera on their on their Zoom classroom. Less of that would happen. I mean, students are still going to be students. Some of that's going to happen. Some some students are going to still show, show up hungover, but it would be better. It would be much better than what it is today when a lot of students are at universities just for completely the wrong reasons.
0: Yeah. I mean, it didn't always used to be the case that uh, getting a college degree was a ticket to the middle class. And there's still kind of like, it's still a place for bookish people to, to, uh, to get higher education regardless of their career prospects, but that's just not the market we've got today. Right. Um, And I
1: mean, and higher education for its own sake, learning for its own sake is something that any really dedicated student can get. At almost any university, if he or she tries hard enough, there are still good classes at every university. There are still good professors at every university. It's just that with everything else that's going on, with all of the mission creep at universities, trying to find that that good professor, that good course, that excellent mentor, it's like finding um, a needle in a haystack because you're distracted by lazy rivers. <laughs>
0: Okay, you've got a, a compelling vision for higher education of a possible world. And in this world, um, college doesn't keep going up faster than inflation year after year. We're not pulling or we're not trying to hide the, co- uh, the cost. We're not uh, developing huge amounts of debt. And you could do this with just a little bit of skin in the game for these universities. Uh, And you're saying this is not politically possible right now. Right. (laughs) So what are you doing to make it politically possible?
1: Right. So actually most of the work that I do is focused on the state level. And so I'm focused on things that are are politically possible right now. And I think one of the best things to do, and it's not sexy at all. So I hope you don't mind is fixing the funding model, Mm -hmm. but I know you like funding models, so it's okay. Right. Uh, Right now. As I said, a lot of universities, their incentive is just to get warm bodies in the seats. And that's because they get their funding based on, you know, are you educating, educating in, you know, scare quotes, a lot of students? Are you enrolling a lot of students? Are you doing something that looks good? Are you building buildings and are you cutting ribbons? Um, And then the legislature gives them, you know, a bucket of money. Here in North Carolina, for the longest time, it was just a very straightforward enrollment funding model. The more warm bodies you get, the more money you get. It's on a per student basis, and then it's multiplied by like five for, or you know, or some uh, some multiplier, you know, for um, the number of administrators they need, and it's based on student credit hours. And actually, I I've heard from you. That that's better than what you've got in Michigan, which <laughs> can be just pulling money out of a hat. Um, it's
0: based on what, what uh, uh, colleges get what they got last year plus or minus a couple of percent. What they got last year, or is, is what they got the year before, and it all goes back to politics. That's just it. It's politics adjusted by a couple of percentage each year. It's inefficient. It's ineffective. But uh, and so uh, going to a per pupil uh, model would be a Positive, but right. it's tough.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, first, I think you know, number one, base your funding on something real instead of just last year. Um, we're already there in North Carolina. We do have enrollment funding, but we're moving kind of to the next the next reform. You know, how can you make enrollment funding better? Mm-hmm. And so we're moving from what used to be is they would guess how many students they'd get in one year, and now they have to look at how many students actually passed classes in the prior year. So you know, real figures instead of guesses. They used to be held harmless if they guessed badly. Um, <laughs> no money would be clawed back. Uh, they used to be held harmless if the university shrank.
0: As in, you could lie to appropriate. You could lie to taxpayers to get more taxpayer funding, Absolutely. and and that's just fine even right. if they no, get called out right no they
1: would just out. say oh we we overestimated right and so they can't do that anymore uh, it used to be if the university shrank they still got at least as much money as they did the year before because you know we don't want to we don't want to hurt our institutions um, that's not the case anymore now if your school shrinks you get less per pupil funding um but they've also started looking at, are there ways to peg funding to performance? And again, it's to try to get those incentives aligned in the right way. And so they look at things like, how many students are you graduating? Um, there are a lot of performance measures that are possible to use, and it's all based on, you know what are the university's priorities, um, uh, total degree exp- degree expenditure is another one. If you can get the dis- degree expenditures down, you can get better funding. Um, As in
0: rewarding them for keeping costs down and actually graduating students.
1: Absolutely. Um, one that I particularly like is that if it's a college of education, for example, you reward the university for having future teachers pass the praxis exam. So they're actually you're making sure that students are actually learning something. You can't do that in every discipline, but you can in a lot, like engineering, where they have to take an engineering exam, for example. So anything where there's licensure, you can peg that um, funding to licensure, just so you're making sure that universities are doing what they are saying that they are doing. Now, performance funding is kind of in its infancy, and so we're learning as we go. Um, There are some drawbacks in that if you measure something, that is what they will put that, that's what they'll do, right? You get what you measure. And so if you measure the wrong things, you'll get the wrong things. And so it can be, you know, it can be dangerous if you don't think it out really well.
0: As in um, trying to make a funding formula and be like, well, if obviously we've got to uh, compensate you for administrators. So if you have more administrators, you get more.
1: I, I should hope that none of them do that, but I wouldn't put it past uh, some states. Um, but let me take graduation rates, as an example, if you measure just graduation rates, that gives universities a really big incentive to dumb down their courses and make it easier to pass. And so you have to make sure that if you're looking at graduation rates, it's not the only thing that you're looking at. You're actually trying to put in measures to prevent them from from somehow just dumbing down the entire curriculum. And so performance measures, I think, have a lot of promise, but it has to be done carefully. Mm
0: -hmm. So what's, uh, what exactly are you doing, though? You've got policies that you're recommending, mm-hmm. but how? what are you doing to actually get these policies implemented?
1: Right. So I think a lot of it is just making, you know, step one, making legislators aware that there is a problem and letting them know best practices in other states. My experience with legislators told me that the very first thing that they ask if you tell them about a reform that you think is a good idea is what other states have done it and how did it work out? And so looking at, you know, what everyone is, has done and what works is, I think, a great model for creating change. You know, we've got this wonderful federalist system here where different states try different things and we can find out what works and what doesn't work. And so I think that's part of it. But telling legislators just over and over and over again i think is also a huge part of it um, one of the other issues we've worked on is free speech and it took 10 years of really sticking every free speech violation under the nose of the north carolina legislature before they realized that they needed to address the issue and so i think that you know legislature
0: uh, sorry what did what do you mean by that
1: so our universities, um, despite the fact that the First Amendment does apply to um, public universities, our public universities here in North Carolina continued to violate student speech. They would you know, kick them off campus for handing out constitutions, uh, deny uh, the permission for student clubs to engage in certain activities, uh, not allow student clubs to use certain spaces Uh, not protect speakers when they were on campus. And so, you know, there's just a a series of things like this, you know, tell students this and this one's my favorite that the only place where you have free speech is in a very small uh, square of grass, like near the bus stop by the highway. That was one that happened. It was at UNCG. That was their free speech zone. Um,
0: Greensboro.
1: (laughs) Greensboro. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, we collected these and every time one of these, a university violated a student's free speech, we reminded the legislature, hey, this is happening. This is still happening on your watch, by the way. Um, And, you know, finally, after 10 years of cataloging the incidences, putting it all together, reminding them, they finally realized, yes, we have to address this. And I think it's the same thing with costs. Uh, legislators are, you know, they're generalists. And so on any issue, you have to remind them over and over of the importance of the issue. And so here in North Carolina, we're doing that uh, not only at the legislative level, but also at the board of governors level, which oversees the whole UNC system and the board of trustees level for each individual UNC institution. And so Really, by working with all of those people, we're able to, you know, move move the ball forward. And
0: yeah, I, was, I was just going to say, as I was, as we were talking about in the introduction, it's their sense of popularity that matters, and high college costs are not popular, but these individual institutions may be.
1: Yes, I think that it it has to be made clear to legislators or to the individual university trustees that students and parents want you know, value for their students. They want value for the individual degree and that taxpayers want value for society. And so we remind them of that. And actually here in North Carolina, we are on year five of a tuition freeze. And so that is a really positive outcome here. We are still working on student fees, which have gone up a little bit, but not as much as other states. And I think that that's, a, that's the beginning of a good outcome. The costs are still too high, taxpayers still bear too much of the burden here in North Carolina, but it's moving in the right direction.
0: How optimistic are you for the future?
1: I think right now we're in a really good place to change higher education. Um, Student debt has gotten a uh, a lot of notice over the past five years. And right now with students all being sent home because of COVID, with Zoom school, students and parents alike have woken up to the fact that they're not really getting their money's worth if a university will tell them to their face that, hey, Zoom's just as good. Like, if you tell a student that, you're you're undermining your model. And so I think that that experience with COVID kind of laid bare a lot of the university's exaggerations about the value that they're providing.
0: Jenna, thank you for helping us understand what's within the Overton Window.
1: Thanks, James. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinac.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.